Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Brief History of Power. Colonel Grills and Dr. Kuntz here. We're going to start talking about aviation and spaceflight very soon. But first, Adam, how's the weather out there? Well, it's very much related to the prevalence of aviation and spaceflight here. It is very nice. Blue skies only. So there you go. It would be a good place to uh, to fly up into today. Oh, see, I thought you were going to talk about DARPA and weather control, and I was getting, I was, I was salivating at the chance. <laughs> I would but, say, uh, I would say Alaska specializes in that a little bit more. This than is we true. Do. Yeah, and there are allegedly people that live up there. Yeah, although I've never seen them. Right, that's reportedly. Right, that's reportedly. I have more evidence for the Darrow than I do the Alaskan. <laughs> Here, I actually woke up to a notification on my phone that said, "Chance of snow showers today." Fake news. And, and, exactly. And what they mean is you might see a snow, something that looks like snow for a minute. I, I don't believe it. I don't know why they lie to me this way. <laughs> because it's still a high in the in the, like the 50s, reaching into 60 today. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens there. So, all right. Well, we took a little bit of a break, talked about church growth, talked about evangelism, and now it's time to get back into our uh, bread and butter here, you know. <laughs> high strangeness so (laughs) yeah yeah accent on high in this case (laughs) and 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 as we talk about aviation and space flight i want you to all just as i know you are visualize just steampunk dirigibles and leonardo da vinci type flying contraption remember what they took from you right and we're starting early here we're not getting up to kitty hawk really you know we're not even going that far i don't think today Right. We're going we're gonna to take a little bit weirder or, you know, maybe in the next episode or two, maybe we'll go down the rabbit hole and we can teach you all about Matthew B. Sellers, a person you probably never heard of and who <laughs> might have actually invented powered flight. We don't know. <laughs> but no, today we're going to begin with first, you know, why even talk about this? And then we're going to get into um, a, a colorful character you might not have heard of. So, yeah. So, Dr. Kuntz, why, why talk about aviation why talk about space travel yeah just the absolute plainest reason and then we can talk about other reasons that probably are going to drive us more in this little series but the plainest reason is that if you can't really have the civilization of the 18th century that you did without sail power you we really don't have what we are and how we move and what we think is possible without without flight and right. th- this is this is something that is going to that is pretty radical that is less common in the United States than it is all, right now in Europe. But the idea that you need to limit your flights and maybe stop flying altogether, obviously, that hasn't really actually been extended to the people who fly to Davos, but it is out there as an idea. And there's something extremely radical about it because flight, the capacity to move, the capacity to move rapidly from place to place, even places that are physically extremely distant from each other, it really undergirds what the 20th and 21st centuries have been. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, some people, especially today, with kind of a primitivist movement going on, think, why should we do this? Why expend money on this? You know, as we go on, we'll see kind of perhaps the seedier side or the more troubling side of this. We'll see it a little bit today, but there is that human need to explore and to conquer. There is still, and part of this is, I think, tied into Genesis. I think it's hardwired into us. 
some people think that trying to fly is somehow sacrilegious, perhaps, or at least some measure of hubris. But how far you want to take that? You know, you could. Right. Well, man's not meant to be in the sky. He's not meant to be in the ocean either, but boats. Buddy. Uh, swimming. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> right. Diving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the idea that, that we're not meant to be there or we're not meant to be in space is is an idea that that somehow if we maintain a hobbit like existence and remember the hobbits are the the hobbits are the central characters of the story but they're by no means the main characters no the hobbits um yeah are, are a storytelling device and nobody like seems to get this everybody reads it and they're like, oh, I feel just like a hobbit. Like, yeah, the whole point is they want to stay home and be comfortable. Everybody. Yeah, that's, right. That's, that's, that's everybody. That's you being a standard modern lazy person. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's not that's not a profound connection. <laughs> right. And and so um and, and and we are increasingly sedentary. And and now that information from across the world, or if you believe, even from outer space, uh, is so readily available that you know, there's just not that drive there. And even in the age of exploration, of course, it's a very small number of people who are exploring. Right. And yet the and yet the the world is captivated by it. And at least the you know, world we're talking about. And so, you know, why captivated by it? Because they understood they they just I think instinctively understood why this mattered. Right. And I'm trying to not to make this into a Manifest Destiny podcast or anything like that, but... Yeah, well, I mean, I, Manifest Destiny, I think it is in a way too limited because what you're saying, and I think you're right, is that the exercise of dominion in various realms of the creation is implanted not just in Americans or something. Yeah. It's implanted in human nature. And look, this began with simple machines. Right. And, and then, you know, continues with the plow. And then continues with the saddle, and then the stirrup, and then on and on, right? Until until you're at the point where men are like, "What can we do about the sky? How can we be like the birds? What's up there?" Right. And then what's beyond the firmament? We'll, we'll say, and what's out there? There's a way in which you can ask these questions in a very healthy way, but as we'll see, there's also a very unhealthy way to explore them. Yeah. Because it's not simply cartography we're talking about here. It's philosophy. It's theology. It's a worldview right. that this study will come to encompass. Yep. And and a lot of people forget that 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 the sciences are not neutral things. They're still moralistic to one degree or another. Uh, they're certainly philosophical to a great degree. And while we've lost that, because I don't know, Carl Sagan happened or something. Even though <laughs> even though you watch his stuff and right. he's and he's a Reddit tier philosopher. And so, um, you know, something to something to think about there. Yeah. And and the thing that Carl Sagan did not reveal in the early 1980s on PBS were were the various backgrounds that he had for thinking what he did. Right. Mm -hmm. Why? Why is a certain kind of atheism so common in certain in certain branches of physics, but not so much in the engineering that gets anybody up to the places where the physicists want them to be? Right. Is that what gets masked with the modern sciences is the inspiration for those sciences. And so that's why we're starting where we are with not only why do this, but also a particularly, I think, salient, important example 
of how theology and philosophy are connected to the sciences. Yeah, absolutely. And so with that, it might be time, unless it's too early, to talk about a Russian hermit. <laughs> you know, behind behind all great modern movements is some is some Russian hermit. Um, just a theory. <laughs> Unironically, my appearance <laughs> notwithstanding. Right. But the guy that we're introducing today is is named Konstantin Ziolkovsky. Starts with a TS, like the probably, I think, correct spelling of czar. And this is a guy that probably the listeners have never heard of, unless they are familiar with the history of Russian spaceflight. <laughs> Most Americans are not familiar with any of that because they're just sort of figured as our enemies in the space race in the middle of the 20th century. Ziolkovsky precedes that. He's born a little bit before our civil war and dies in the 1930s. But his thinking, not his building or his engineering, because he really didn't build hardly anything that he talked about. He thought it through. And that's a method that is very, 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 very different from the Wright brothers, whom we'll talk about next week. He thought it through and he thought it through well. And so his thinking proved to be fundamental for also other continental, particularly uh, German engineers in the early 20th century, but especially for the Soviet space program, which if you know anything about it, and I would actually encourage you to look it up, I don't think we're going to do another episode just on the Soviet space program. But if you look it up, you'll see they're part of the reason that they get there first is because they are more daring. They're also better theoretically prepared very often than the Americans who tend to sort of, you know, just, just force things, right? An American, instead of thinking through it first, would just do it 20 times until it works, <laughs> right? <laughs> Tesla criticizes that in, in Thomas Edison. Like if you just stopped and thought, you'd save yourself a lot of time. <laughs> the Soviets tend to think through things faster or more and, th and thus get results faster. They also are a little bit more daring in the way that they do things the way that they even just conduct yeah. rocket launches. And I think that's a, a cultural thing. Yeah, big time. Russians are much more ponderous, I think, than your, than your average American. <laughs> yeah, At least right. they used to be. I don't, you know, we're talking pre-revolution here. But even afterwards, you still have some, you still have quite a bit of that. And I'd like to think they're like that today. You never know, though. You know, one of the things that contributes to him being ponderous is just the fact that he's a recluse. Guy lives in a log cabin, like, doesn't uh, come like out. an actual, not not like I'm an introvert. You know, here's yeah. a meme on Facebook. I'm an introvert. You know, yeah, I'm right. an INTJ and, or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. What, what? I don't even know what somebody's like. That's not what an INTJ right. is. Right? Yeah, we we're not qualified to talk about that. Right? We could pretend to be. Most don't. Most pretend to be. <laughs> but yeah, he he literally just holes up in a cabin most of his life and reads science fiction and gets ideas. Yeah, the role of science fiction here is important because if, if Ziolkovsky is he's born in 1857, the thing that's formative for his generation, 1870s, 1880s, into the 1890s, is the earliest instance of separation, and so this doesn't sound like we're talking about rockets, but we really are, of separation of certain genres of literature out from, let's say, general literature. So there are things that you can go back in the 16th century, 17th century, 18th century and say, oh, that's that's early sci-fi. Like, could you yeah. could you say that Gulliver's Travels is sci-fi? 
right? Right. But Jonathan Swift is not limiting himself to just talking about other planets or little people or giant people or something like that. But by the 19th century, somebody like Jules Verne actually is. And Ziolkovsky, and this, this is something to ponder, whether you're Russian or not, Ziolkovsky spent it is part of part of something something key, let's say, to his ability to think about new things is that he is never put into a steady stream of someone else's thinking. He's homeschooled and then he's reading literature. And so his his capacity for imagination is completely, you could say uncharitably, it's undisciplined. You could say charitably, it's free. Those are both those yeah. are both potentially very much true. And he's reading Jules Verne and he's thinking, well, what if we actually did something like this? What if we went to Mars? Yeah. And then so he'll end up writing what today we would call science fiction, but he intends it to be an educational treatise at the same time. Right. Uh, which is something that eh, is sort of foreign. I mean, you you might say historical fiction tries to do that, but this is still something quite a bit different from historical fiction. Yeah. And right. it's this is speculative fiction, but he's still trying to say, yeah, but this is probably what's going on up there on the moon or something like that. And and people were obsessed with the moon. Nobody talks about the moon anymore, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but there were, there was just like scads of stuff written at this time about what life on the moon is like. And even before it, right. you, know, you, you go through these historical documents and people are talking about the moon and its inhabitants all the time. And I just find that interesting. We don't even look at the moon anymore. You probably, most of you probably live in places where you can barely see the moon. That's that, that's part of it. I mean, practical knowledge of the heavens has decreased as desire to go into them or to explore them or as we're going to talk about to settle them has increased yeah so if our ancestors could probably navigate by virtue of the heavens on land on sea we can't do that we don't know where we are we don't know what we're looking at up there at the same time we have a practical ability to reach them that our ancestors did not sure. so there's 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 an there's an inversion going on here as well mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's look a little bit then about what his philosophy uh, is rooted in. Yeah. And kind of what the what broader cosmism is going to mean then. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you if you have heard of Ziolkovsky, probably what you are most aware of, and it's probably because you're you're interested maybe in the history of space flight, is his scientific work which which mainly involves as far as actual accomplishment of anything goes the construction of dirigibles again something that from the late 19th and early 20th century like aspirations toward the moon rather than mars is now forgotten about but what was most successful certainly before kitty hawk and and even afterwards and was certainly a competitor down to the the destruction of the of the hindenburg is the idea of lighter than air flight. And that's that's mainly what Tsiolkovsky built were steel dirigibles that would be able to propel themselves throughout the earth. He did not build rockets, though he theorized about rocket propulsion 
as well as about something that, you know, that, lots of different models for this, but basically his inspiration seeing the construction of the Eiffel Tower was that we could build an elevator to space. So right, the old rather, space elevator, right? <laughs> rather than having, and if you just want to think about the idea very simply, it's rather than having something move up there, we move people, we build something that goes up there and we move the people up there. Okay. Yeah. A people mover right. in Disney terms. Right. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it's one of uh, the great sadnesses I have is that I see all these people that are constantly on cruises constantly. And in a better world, they could be on dirigibles. <laughs> yes. That's yeah. right. You know, and it's just yeah. not going to happen. And I had to let, you gotta let that dream go, but there is something much more somehow wholesome about floating in the air in a dirigible and having roughly the same amount of space. Certainly. Yeah. Certainly genteel. And, and I think that this, this is, this has been forgotten and, and <laughs> We're going to assist in that. I don't have a dirigibles episode <laughs> planned at all, but but this was such an aspiration long before there was Operation Paperclip or anything like that. People probably have heard of. We we brought Germans over, not <laughs> not as prisoners <laughs> of war in any sense, but just as advisors to Akron, Ohio, in order to figure out. This is particularly led by the rubber industry. How are we going to? also ourselves have lighter than air reliable travel throughout the united states this is in the 1920s and we we do this because the potential to do it and the compared to heavier than air flight the relatively much less complex propulsion issue that we have also having so much heal basically a monopoly on helium gas in the united states we thought this is how we'll do it the the remnant of that is the existence of a Goodyear blimp at your you know favorite college football <laughs> right. playoff game. Yeah. So back to cosmism, and really kind of the meat of this discussion is going to yeah. center around its its central tenet, which is the future of man, and where will man go, right. and why does man need to, in order for man to, how do you want to put this, elevate himself to where he needs to be, yes. he right. has to conquer the stars. He does. Yes. Yeah. Because, because this isn't just a matter of, you know, his little historical oddities like, oh, I didn't know the Goodyear blimp was a remnant of a larger, you know, flight program. Ru the Russians, particularly, and the reason we're starting with them, perceived in the 19th century that flight had a much greater significance for human beings than simply a, a new means, you know, a, a people mover, right? Right. When you when you step on the thing at the airport that makes you go much faster than just walking would do so that you can get to a different terminal that much faster, you know, that's a people mover. You're like, OK, this is kind of helpful, but I'm not <laughs> fundamentally transformed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, think about this. If, if Sokovsky could could have could have looked into his orb and saw Spirit Airlines, he would have probably burned his work. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this is not. Yeah, right. Because a lot of people's experience of spaceflight today is is sort of degrading or dehumanizing. And the the idea behind what comes to be called Russian cosmism is that this will not only be ennobling that we could travel, whether lighter or heavier than air, from New York to Los Angeles, from Paris to Berlin, 
but that what would happen is that fundamental things about humanity would be changed and changed for the better. Right. And, and see, we've lost the concept even of something being ennobling because everything we consume now is completely passive. And this is (laughs) right. And (laughs) right. And, and travel is by nature participatory. And so you you will be transformed. Okay. First by a change in science or a change in industry. Right. But fundamentally the way a, a person travels and, and then there's just the kind of the philosophical aspect of we've now conquered the sky. We've conquered the stars. We've conquered the moon or whatever. It, it is, it serves to elevate man. And that can be, now, a lot of our listeners are saying, well, that sounds vaguely satanic, and it will come to be that, as we'll see, but just in and of itself, I don't think it's sinful to say man is going to dominate creation. That's the mandate. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what man, that's what, you know, okay, we might send chimpanzees as experiments, but they're not right. going to be populating the stars. Right. We send the, we send the chimps up because we're going to go up there and we're going to do what we did to the earth. Right. But we're going to do it better, is the idea. And in doing that, we become something better than we are as men. Does man ontologically change? Kind of, as we in their philosophy. Yeah. You know, especially with Fyodorov, um, we're going to see that that's kind of the goal. Right. And that and that's why this lends towards uh, transhumanism. This, this is the genesis of transhumanism, that man will still be man, but he will become something different too. Better. Yeah. Better. Yeah. And so, it, go ahead. Well, it's, I mean, it's like a caterpillar in a cocoon, right? I mean, right, exactly, right. And and if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, you, you can see that that idea is there. The question is, who is driving this? Right. Who's going to drive that transformation into, right, the symbol of the resurrection being a butterfly? Who's going to drive the transformation in, in human being? that will change us fundamentally so that we are no longer subject to particularly yeah. death. And we've seen even in the scriptures, what happens when man tries to control what he is and his own destiny. I mean, in, in just moral and sinful terms, but we see it arguably in more stark terms in something like Genesis three, not to, you know, go full weird today, but that is, I mean, we're already we there. We're it, already there, right? Yeah. I mean, you can, and so when God changes man, man is still man, but man is better. Right. When man tries to change man, man is is degraded. Although he he might be described as mighty, right? To use the script, to use the term in scripture, but uh, it's it's not a positive mighty. It's not right. a good mighty. Yeah. And and that's what happens with transhumanism, and that's and I don't know that that's the intention of the Russian philosophers, but it's obviously what we're dealing with today with transhumanism. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is so behind, behind Tsiolkovsky's ideas and Tsiolkovsky as we'll make clear towards the end of the episode has, has a different set of religious ideas than this man, but behind Tsiolkovsky is a guy, Nikolai Fyodorov, who is, he's called the Socrates of Moscow because of his wisdom, because of the role that he plays in the thinking of people you have heard of, like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. But he's also called the Socrates of Moscow because he doesn't really write down his own ideas. And, 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 <laughs> yeah. and, and, and that, that enables him 
to propagate his teaching through many, many, many people, right? I mean, is is he a podcaster in the 19th century? I don't know, but he's not he's not writing down what he thinks, but what he thinks therefore becomes influential in all of these different people who come and hear him and and take in his ideas. And his his basic idea, which will then be behind, okay, why are we innovating? What are we searching for? What are we aiming at? Is what he calls the common task. Mm-hmm. And that is that is the overcoming along the way. There will be other innovations, but the but the goal of all of this is the overcoming of death. Right. And and there's and and there it's interesting because it's it's overcoming death even retroactively. It's not like we think we're okay, we're gonna have machines that keep us alive. It is keeping those who are alive alive. So yeah. they never die, but right. somehow bringing back those who died. Right. If you, if you, yeah, you know, right. Resurrection. It. It's resurrection. It's yeah. resurrection. And it's kind of spooky. And it should be in, in at least for a, for a modern audience. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's also fascinating that, and I don't, I don't have Russian. So there's a, there's a gap here, but what, what is fascinating to me is how, <laughs> I I cannot imagine some, you know, kind of very, very large, large cranium type of, you know, Baltic German coming up with this stuff because it it relies on an idea. And Fyodorov is himself outwardly, you know, if if you looked at, you know, church membership, church attendance, Fyodorov is is an is an Orthodox Christian. You you couldn't have a Lutheran come up with this because the Lutheran would be like, yeah, but original sin. Right. <laughs> right. You're you're gonna die because of original sin. No technology is gonna overcome that. Fyodorov is like, you know, he's not he's not, as it were, held back. I think I think the holding back is a good thing. He's not held back by that idea. And and so he's like, okay, well, you know, let's let's get some origin type, you know, return of all things going on. And we're gonna resurrect everybody. Because obviously God wants us to honor our ancestors. And so a, an Eastern, you know, you can say this is cartoonish. He just advocates ancestor worship pretty easy when you're already venerating icons. We're, we're going to bring all of those people back. We are meant to be one with them. We are meant to be alongside them. They are not meant to be dead. If God has given us the means to overcome the fact of their death, the fact of their separation, the fact of our own eventual death, then then it, it would be ungodly, it would be unloving not to pursue the means to overcome those things. And that's why the task is a common task, because if death is a universal malady, it needs to be overcome universally. Right. Which brings us tangentially, at least, to you know, a question that we do deal with and everybody does Christian or not uh, with modern medicine and the extension of life and the ethics of that. And and what is the slogan now from conception to natural death? Yeah. And, uh, but you know, for the Orthodox, for the Russian Orthodox, uh, death is not natural, you know? (laughs) So, so you begin with, we were never meant that this is part of the curse, which they would believe in. I mean, ancestral sin uh, still has the consequences yeah. of of Adam's right. sin, which which right. is death. Uh, 
Right. So how, how do how do we overcome that? And what you have to not do here is to implant Western, say, 19th century ideas of utopia into this. It it, it might externally seem the same, yeah. but I would argue it's it's really quite different. Yeah. With the way they're approaching this, because they're just not thinking in these terms. They're no, they're not. And and you know, if you look up Fyodorov, they're going to connect him to ideas of Darwinian evolution. You have to understand that if you don't have the the gap between faith and reason that you get in Western history for all kinds of reasons. Okay. And and it's there, right? I don't think there's a reason for us to be dishonest and say, we don't have any tension between faith and reason in the history of Western Christianity. If that doesn't occur in the East, right, in, in Eastern Christianity, primarily here, Russian Christianity, then you're dealing with a situation where by the time the Russians are in intimate contact with the West, as of the 18th century, definitely moving into the 19th, where knowledge of French becomes standard among educated people, uh, knowledge of German becomes important, then the the research that in the West is not going to be done by a, a, you know a a regular mass going Roman Catholic or something or a Lutheran who always goes to divine service and just happens to be also obsessed with attaining the stars, then you're going you're going to get a situation where they are integrating technological things that we think of at, in sort of Carl Sagan terms as the preserve of atheists yeah, or the preserve of people who have no reverence for God. They're thinking, oh, we will integrate technological change. Man is meant to change. They're not so much debating the meaning of Genesis 1 and 2 when they're thinking about evolution. They're thinking this, will be, this, is, this is an expression of the fact that man can change for the better. So it's interesting, you know, let's go back a few centuries yeah. um, and you look at the time of, say, you know, Ivan the Great, for example, and what's going on in Russia at the time. That's actually a time where Russia is very concerned about foreign influence, and that will continue even up to the time period we're talking about here. But right. but basically, especially German esoteric books are smuggled in uh, and you have the movement of what are called sometimes scroll readers. And and so there there was a time where what are some very dangerous philosophical concepts coming into Russian Christianity and infecting high status people. Right. And so, you know, they're like, you know, executed for reading these books and things like that because it led to things like, you know, trying to overthrow the czar, which will get you, you know, killed. Right. And so so for several centuries after that, they continue with pushing back against foreign incursion, but by this time, it's becoming at least more acceptable. And it's not quite as, it didn't have to be smuggled in, I guess we would say. Right. But because of all of this, Russia keeps its particular Russian worldview there. And depending on your persuasion, because remember, we're pre-revolution here. And and the revolution, at least in my opinion, is um, a foreign body um, destroying or attempting to destroy what what would be a Russian? Yeah, and and so uh, you have this very interesting Russian filter for what's coming in, and kind of unshakable, and and so 
you know, th- there's a reason why you know we can't just say Orthodox. We have to say Russian Orthodox when we're yeah, talking. That's right. Yeah. Because because the Greeks are not dealing with this. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Greeks are just enjoying being alive in a way. Maybe that yeah, the Russians. Exactly. Are, yeah, they're, right. they're dealing with Turks and you know. Right. Yeah. They're trying to have a country. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. just it's just very different. Right. And you know, not being theological here, but just the accidents of culture and time. It really could only happen at this point and could only happen in Russia that you would get something like this. Right. That's right. And so and so then let's talk a little bit more about transhumanism then. Yeah. Yeah. And and what that means. So if it's tied to Darwinism, you know, we're gonna say it's not entirely fair to tie this to Nikolai. But nevertheless, it's there. It is. And can there be a transhumanist movement without Darwinism then? You know, I think there can, and it's not really accidental that if you look into transhumanism today, you're going to find that, for example, Mormons have their own version of this. And in in order to explain, okay, why why are Russian Orthodox men of, of all sorts? And it, once you begin to look into Fyodorov, you'll find that he is connected as an influence to lots of people you might actually know, the guy that wrote Dr. Zhivago. Right. We mentioned Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky being himself also an, you know, an Orthodox, small O, Russian Orthodox Christian. Is that certain religious ideologies are going to have a desire for man's transformation in a positive direction, in a way that will be a fundamental change to his being. Among those are Russian Orthodox Christianity and Mormonism. So transhumanism, which we might think of as, okay, here's a weird idea about how, you know, this Silicon Valley guy is first going to biohack his, you know, life cycles and change himself. And he's going to live until he's 200, according to him. And then he's going to colonize Mars or something. There are religious versions of the idea that we can be fundamentally transformed through our own efforts. Right. And... You know, I, I do strongly believe Mormons will be on the forefront of the transhumanist movement. Yeah, sim- simply because of their theology, simply right. because of where they are. Right, and and it'll be it'll be kind of a combination of both biological and mechanical. That's what we're talking about here. I mean, the two philosophers we're discussing, one has a biological approach to this, the other has a a technological approach. Yeah, and so will we overcome by somehow changing? In a, for lack of a better word, spiritual sense, who we are as humans, will it be the change in man or will it be man with technology yeah. changing himself? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the divorce here between the spirit and technology is is not even helpful for understanding the history, let alone in one's own thinking. And I, I, I think the Russians are right about that, that faith and reason are intertwined with each other in in anyone not only anyone's life but also the history of civilizations and to to split them apart and to think that somehow there's no spiritual or religious component to some guy from silicon valley trying to live until he's 200 is absolutely crazy fyodorov and Tsiolkovsky are going to have different ideas about how this will be achieved but they both saw space exploration, for example, or Fyodorov also talked about colonizing the ocean, which I I just find intrinsically more interesting for my own reasons. 
than because we can all just wear boaters at that point. Colonizing the ocean, in addition to space, these are these are both movements in human history that are going to include both technological exploration, but yeah, and once but, you've conquered, oh, you yeah, know. but 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 also a spiritual impulse to do so. Right, you're not going to do so if you you're not you're not going to go to all that work for nothing. You're going to do it because of some kind of deeper inspiration right. or impulse. Yeah. Once you've conquered death, what's left to conquer? Everything else. <laughs> right. Right. And so and so there you go. I mean, and you know, the Silicon Valley guy, the, you know, the hypothetical one, you know, uh, but an actual one and one we're probably both thinking of is the vampire guy. Oh yeah. What's who is name? uh yeah, I, I can't think of his name, but he's he's <laughs> I, I just think of him as Moonbra, so that's yeah, that's where I'm at. Right. Yeah. He's taking his son's blood and injecting himself and, you know, is he's what, I don't know, pushing 50 and he's got the, yeah. I've got the body of a 26 year old or an 18 year old or whatever he's saying, very creepy stuff, but this is what you're going to see more of. And, and you see this in even like boomer targeted advertisements now with these genetic labs. Yeah. Are, are you familiar with these commercials where I, I'm not for liability purposes, I'm not going to name one. Yes, sir. But then you dig into it, and what they do is they take your blood, shoot it up with a bunch of stuff, and then re-inject you with your own blood. But okay, I was crazy for believing in Pizzagate. I mean, right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the the idea the idea behind it all, and and this is being very much mainstreamed in the in telling everybody that your real problem is that you you have hormonal imbalances. You all have hormonal imbalances. So you're going to take something, take some kind of technology that was developed basically for women going through menopause and then apply that and commercialize that for everyone. You have low testosterone. I mean, every, every to move everyone into a, a, a point where biochemically they are like a transsexual in that mm -hmm. they, they're all on hormone replacement therapy of one kind <laughs> right. or another. Yeah. Is is the idea that human beings and their fundamental problems? Oh, you're you're low T because you're 68 years old, right? Yes, of course your body is different than it was when you were 20 because you're going to die, right? Right. But the idea that you can counteract that if you just buy the right stuff or are injected with the right stuff or fly to the right planet, all of these things are interconnected, and so biological technologies are not going to be fundamentally different from mechanical technologies because the goal is going to be the same. Whether you're Mormon or not, right? The idea that you need to be fundamentally changed and the way that the way that we do that is that you're going to pay for yes. a medical treatment. And then here's the interesting thing. You go back to these guys and there, there's going to be a point at where we overcome these things and it becomes relatively easy. But the age of space exploration or sea exploration is going to be quite difficult, just like it was conquering the new world. Yeah. What we've done is we've skipped a step with modern transhumanism, and we've already corporatized it and made it into something that, like anything else, pay for the magic pill or pay for the chip or pay for the bio upgrades, and you'll quickly be where these men were talking about. And it's going to lead to a, a, a horrible breakdown. Uh, possibly existentially, if the, if the technology proves to work, you're going to have an existential crisis on your hands. And there's really not going to be any way around it. And people are thinking, okay, we're going to overcome death 
and we're going to overcome illness and all of this. So what do we do? And they think it's going to be like Star Trek. It's not going to be Star Trek. It's just going to be the, tw- the early 20th century on a worse scale. <laughs> you know, uh, apologies to Gene Roddenberry, but it's not going to happen. Yeah. Because original sin is real. Right. Original sin is real. These guys are not operating with that idea. I, I, I want to, I mean, we should be clear. Fyodorov is a Christian of some kind. Tsiolkovsky is not. And Fyodorov dies 14 years before the revolution. Tsiolkovsky dies in the middle of the 1930s and, and is not persecuted. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what's interesting about that is that when we hear about space or the space race, we tend to focus on it as a, as a political lever, as something that respectively the Soviet Union or the United States of America would brag about. That, that wasn't their vision. And I think they were actually right about that because they understood that this was bigger than what could just be subject to political control, bragging, achievement, being able to spy on other countries. Tsiolkovsky understood that this was a fundamental view of man. And what was very interesting about Tsiolkovsky is that he believed not so much in any version of the Christian God as that the universe was controlled by a certain force. Right. He's a determinist. We're puppets. You know, everything that you guys think Calvinists are, he he really kind of is. <laughs> I mean, my heart is... It's not strangely warmed. It's very explicably warm. Yeah, he and it's also interesting philosophically, right? He doesn't think of literal rocket science as something other than a means to an end. And, And what I'm saying is that in the history of technology, we tend maybe for Western faith, reason, divorce purposes or something to focus on technology as its own thing. So here's right. the history of technology. Here's the history of computers. I remember five and a half inch floppy disks. I rem- you know, whatever. That That's not really the point. And I think he's completely right about that because his idea is if the universe is mechanically determined by some kind of force, so maybe he's something like a deist, definitely sufficiently inoffensive to the Soviet regime. He's not persecuted. He's fine. He supports the revolution that if if he can come into contact with those mechanical forces and this is why space flight specifically is so important that obviously those forces affect us from a great from a cosmic distance and in order to have something to do with them to to take control whether you think that's aimed at the resurrection of the dead in Fyodorov's case or you don't but in order to take control over those forces that affect us from a distance, think about, you know, if you know anything about sunspots or or solar storms or something, you can, you right, that's affecting us from a distance. In order to do that, we have to get into space. Yeah. We have to. So it wasn't, it wasn't an idea so much today where maybe we need to terraform Mars because we've ruined Earth. But it's it's similar in that we have a basic problem that we can really only overcome through the exploration and especially the, the changing of space and, and other planets and, and our moon and so by us 
for Tsiolkovsky, that's because I need to come into contact with those forces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and w- once I do, I will be able to control those forces. Yeah, by and by becoming united to the principles of the universe, you become one with the will of the universe, uh, the, whatever that is for him. And so it, it kind of sounds like sacred geometry when you scratch at it a little bit. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to spell that out because the listeners may have, <laughs> they they may have understood that the guys that are exploring space in, you know, Lewis's space trilogy are, are the baddies, right? Are the Satanists, the, the guys out going out there, right? They, they go there first. How, how would sacred geometry be connected to let's say the elementary principles Right in New Testament yeah. terms, yeah. Let's try to figure this out. Yeah, what's so, going on? Basically, there is hidden and forbidden knowledge, okay, that we're not supposed to tap into, and some people believe that we should be tapping into, and so by learning sacred geometry, by learning these esoteric principles, and and really it, it is uh, mathematical, and a lot of it is. It's not just you know philosophical. Oh, we become one with the universe. It is. This is mechanically, for lack of a better word, how it's done. Yeah. And so we are peering into the unknown, things that are really forbidden for man to um, to come into contact with. We are now taking that on and doing what is right in our own eyes with it, because. By doing so, we are illuminating ourselves. We are being exposed to this hidden great reality. And so if you see this as a positive, you don't realize that you're just listening to what demons are telling you. You are, you are simply you know, being neutral and noble. You're tapping into something that, from their perspective, is, is morally neutral, but actually probably more than that is probably a moral positive for them. By by hacking into the forbidden parts of creation, and I, I tried to say that in a way that would make it simple, but I think I might have just complicated the situation. Well, why why is the knowledge? I mean, how would you explain that the knowledge is is forbidden? Because modern people have a difficulty that if if I can yeah. do, they they can't tell a difference between can and should. Right. So if I can do it, then obviously I should do it because I I can inject you know my eighteen year old's blood into me. Right. And I can feel better after I do that. Yeah. How would you put this? It's it's kind of one of those things that, and we've talked about this a lot. One, as a Christian, instinctively you should know it's wrong. But okay. You, you, <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah you but need, you've you never need... been taught anything except that you were a sinner. Yeah. So so. Right. So what else? Right. So everything I'm going to do is sinful. Why not lean into the skid? (laughs) So let's see. Why is God telling us not to go after false gods? Okay, let's let's start with that question. It's not only because it's not only because God is a jealous God. That's certainly the primary thing. Yeah. But every time in scripture when people go after false gods, it means a few things. So, you, of course, you're breaking the first commandment and all that. But it's also an induction into a whole host of rituals, symbols, and uh, mechanics that lead to the destruction of life and lead to a degradation of life. And, and, and it is always, always 
something of a mystery cult that you must be initiated into that tells you here are these principles that have been handed down to us. Here are these mechanics that have been handed down to us. And so to put it in, say, Old Testament terms, kill X number of people here and your crops will be good. Right. Okay. Do these sacrifices or maim yourself, cut yourself, whatever. Right. Like I said, to put it in biblical terms, and X will happen. Sacred geometry is much the same. Do X, Y, and Z to achieve this result. It is a form of pagan worship even if it doesn't lead itself to a, to a human sacrifice. And and maybe it does. Maybe there is some level of human or animal sacrifice involved in this, as we might see right. in a later episode. Yeah. I, uh, go ahead. Yeah. And so it is, it is all a pagan mystery cult at the end of the day. Um, excuse me. It is all a satanic mystery religion at the end of the day. Cause I can't say pagan cause that's a proper term, but if we just say satanic, and a lot of times when we say esoteric, that's what it lends itself to. Specific rituals and symbols that will lead to a certain result. And it is a form of divination that it is forbidden. And God does not forbid divination simply because it breaks the first commandment. He does it because it will kill his creation, ultimately. But it does so in a, in a very uh, unsuspecting way. We've thrown a bunch of uh, virgins into the volcano. And our crops are good. Yeah. Ergo, it worked. Right. The sacred mysteries worked. And and so what do you have with sacred geometry? What do you have with transhumanism or any of the things we're talking about here? We have cracked into these mysteries, whether we've discovered these mysteries through science, quote unquote, or whether they've been handed down to us through word of mouth or through hidden books throughout the years. Right. It's the same principle at play. And it and it and it's called science, and it's thought of as completely separate from religion. Yeah. In the West, the reason we started with the Russians is because they are sufficiently like us and sufficiently, you know, accomplished in spaceflight that we, it wouldn't be immediately dismissed. But if we had started with the Cahokia mounds, right, and we had said you're going to find this really weird thing, exactly, where from Babylon to you know just east of East St. Louis people mastered geometry's relationship to the heavens in order to offer human sacrifices and the destruction of life that will in their mind somehow extend life or propagate life and that there's a relationship between between satanic priesthoods and sacred geometry technology advanced mathematics astronomy throughout human history People would have said, "Oh, that's you know, that's totally nuts." Or why did they start there? Right. <laughs> With the Russians, the the confluence of technological exploration for the purposes of fundamentally changing humanity and actual accomplishment of those things in modern times is there. So we started there so that it would be, I think, just simply clearer than if we had started much farther back. Well, and think about this. Let's go back to the vampire stuff. Yeah. They're not consulting the almanac when they do this, but it has to be done a certain time of the day, has to be done in a certain schedule. And whether or not you're um, looking in the stars when you do it, there's only one way we measure time, and that's the movement of celestial bodies. Right. And 
it, it's not unconnected and, and you can, and you or it's not disconnected and you can say, well, no, you're just waiting four weeks between shots because you've got a blah, blah, blah. No, it's still a measurement of time and time is still connected to the stars. Time is still connected to the heavenly bodies. You can't escape that. Right. And so, you know, we're getting kind of out there, but it, it is, it is all uh, related. I mean, I'm not going down and like, look at these symbols in the microchips. What does that look like? But why not look at that? Why not ask that question? <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, if you if you think about the heavenly bodies, let's express the difference this way: you're either looking at them as for signs and for seasons, and accepting that they are part of God's governance of this creation, which is an end in itself. So much so that the Son of God does not become an alien life form; he becomes a man, and that our life is determined at his beck and call that that's that's what everything hangs upon right this this is your kind of cornelius van till drawing on the board which is here's two circles connected by a single string the circle up top is god and the circle on the bottom <laughs> is creation including us right or you are going to say all of this is in flux and this is where you can see that there's a, a relationship between certain things that you could say Nikolai Fyodorov is some kind of Christian, or you could say Mormons are not Christians, or you could say the Silicon, you know, Moonbra is definitely not a Christian. What, what do they all have in common? They all have this idea that there is no settled nature, either in the heavenly bodies or in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And that because everything is in flux, what we need to do is to begin to achieve control over that flux. Yeah. And I think to most people out there, they would they would see this and say, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't we? We've done it with everything else. Because the argument is typically, oh, so you're against penicillin then, or you're against <laughs> blood transfusions or whatever. Yeah. And uh, and so, yeah, because that's, well, I mean, the blood transfusion is going to be an easy one. Well, what's the difference? Again, instinctively, you should know what the difference is, you know. Donating your blood to save the life of someone is very different from harvesting blood in order to extend your own life. Yeah. Even though at the end of the day, it's still just injecting blood to one degree or another, there's still a fundamental difference here going. So developing technologies, say, to help life, extend life, cure disease is, on, is, a, is wholly different from developing technologies so that you can conquer Mars or conquer death. Right. And, and, and there's, there's, a, there's a, the absolute most basic difference. And the, and the reason I said, you know, I don't, here's why I don't think a, and we'll, we'll talk about people who are at least supposed to be Lutherans in a couple episodes. <laughs> that's, that's a we very do that creative, every episode. Right. <laughs> <laughs> behind, behind the use of technology is always a human being who either worships the true God or does not. And when he doesn't worship the true God, that will be expressed in all kinds of ways that will, however, and this is what we're trying to point out with a relationship between ancient knowledge of the heavens and modern knowledge of the heavens, because we believe human nature is stable and, and, and since Adam stably sinful, is that when he is not worshiping the true God, he will always desire what would now be called radical life extension, and that that will always come in in the way of a vampire yeah 
that he will be a vampire upon his fellow man because that is what the demons push us to be is to not not to donate our blood not to give our blood not to sacrifice ourselves but to sacrifice others right, right? so that we we will not bear the image of Christ who donates exactly right we will we will bear the image of satan who sucks blood who takes yeah, who requires more it's it's satan's typical inversion we are washed in the blood of the lamb how can he pervert blood you know right. the li- the life is in the blood right. and the scriptures are very clear and very uh, strong on this so how can satan invert what is something is good and he and he does what he always does he makes it selfish uh, and he makes it a humanist if we can use that term here right and so so yeah absolutely that's absolutely what's going on here so last couple of minutes here in yeah. this episode uh, where should we leave the audience for next time for next time as we look at the history of american both aviation as well as the beginnings of rocketry narrowly or broadly spaceflight all of it pre-nasa for example what you want to pay attention to is how when as we're going to see with americans we we tend to be very much unaware of why we are doing things sometimes this is described as our being practical or our being pragmatic I, I think a better description of Americans is not so much that they're pragmatic as that they are theologically naive mm-hmm. or ideologically naive broadly, that unlike a Russian, we're not going to spend an enormous amount of time thinking about why we would do this. So right. Tsiolkovsky is a great place to start because he never built a rocket. <laughs> right. <laughs> like that's so un-American. <laughs> the the American would build 25 rockets and then maybe eventually once he has made money off of it stop and think why am I building rockets? Right. <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> so something that you'll see is that the, the this story is very much determined by the whether conscious or unconscious drive behind the innovation the thought behind the technology whether the guy has thought about it beforehand or like an american and maybe this maybe this is our youthfulness as a nation maybe this is part of our optimism but we tend to run and then think about why we ran right yeah and so we'll we'll see that as we tell the story not only of the wright brothers but also of a couple guys who matter quite a bit both in the the geography as well as the technological achievement of space flight. And that's that's two fairly Southern California characters, Robert Goddard and Jack Parsons. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was a fun one. A lot more vampire talk than I thought it was going to be, but always, <laughs> always All speculative welcome. fiction is connected. So horror and sci-fi are not really that different. That's the basic Ab- takeaway. Absolutely. Well, this... <laughs> This has been a brief history of power. Thank you for listening, and you know where to find us. Are you looking for a Christ-centered healthcare provider, one that values life no matter the stage, and knows that we are made in the image of God and thus have inherent regenerative abilities? Or are you a healthcare provider looking to escape the increasingly woke system that employs you? Direct eCare can help. We are a concierge telehealth company founded by a cradle Lutheran who takes his God-given vocation seriously. 
we offer our patients direct, unfettered access to our providers with unlimited, as-needed telehealth services for only $35 per month or $370 per year. We are currently able to provide care to patients in the state of Idaho only, but are actively seeking providers in other states that would like to partner with us to start their own direct e-care clinic. Whether you are a prospective patient or an interested provider, you can learn more at www.directe-care.com.